It was October 27th, 1962. Some of you might remember what you were doing that Saturday afternoon nearly 60 years ago. But far away from here, off the coast of Cuba, aboard a Soviet submarine, a tense argument was underway that would forever impact the course of human history as we know it. The crew of the B-59 Soviet submarine were dealing with the United States Navy dropping non-lethal depth charges during their blockade of Cuba during what was known as the Cuban Missile Crisis. And while the action was intended to pressure any Soviet submarines to surface, the crew of the B-59 had been incommunicado deep underwater and were unaware of the intention. They thought, and many on board believed, they were witnessing the beginning of a third world war. And trapped within the sweltering sub as the air conditioning was no longer working, the crew feared they were about to die. And so they figured they'd go out fighting. And unknown to the U.S. forces above, they had a special weapon in their arsenal, a 10-kiloton nuclear torpedo. And what's more, the Soviet officers had permission to launch the nuclear torpedo without waiting for approval from Moscow. But there was a catch. All three senior officers on board had to agree to deploy the weapon. Two of the vessel's senior officers, including its captain, wanted to launch the missile. But the third senior officer, a man by the name of Vasily Archipov, refused to authorize the launch. He had, was not convinced that war had broken out, and his stubbornness irritated the other two officers. And as a result, the situation in the control room quickly grew tense. There was shouting and yelling and arguing, but Archipov would not budge, and eventually he was able to calm down the captain. He urged the submarine to surface and communicate with Moscow to to determine their next course of action before they do anything rash. The torpedo was never fired. Had it been launched, the fate of the world would have been very different. Many historians have speculated the, the domino effect of world events afterwards. The attack would have probably started a chain reaction of events that would have caused global devastation and an unimaginable number of civilian casualties. The lesson from all of this, one historian has noted, is that a guy named Vasily Archipov saved the world. One dissenting voice changed everything. Call it resisting peer pressure. Call it having common sense. Call it divine intervention. Call it whatever you want. Archipov's disagreement and variance in opinion changed everything and arguably the course of human history. This morning, I want to introduce you to another person whose convictions changed everything. This individual held firm to his beliefs when everyone else folded under pressure. He was not disillusioned or persuaded by his bleak and pessimistic surroundings to believe an alternative fabricated fiction or an imaginary worst-case scenario. This individual, this minor character, may not have saved the world with his dissenting opinion. However, I believe he did give us a major message. His name is Caleb a biblical international spy. 
If you've managed to make it through all the numbers and numbers, you'll be introduced to Caleb in Numbers chapter 13. He's one of the 12 men recruited by Moses to scout out the territory of Canaan, known only to them as the promised land. We're not given his resume or his backstory or really anything about him for that matter. All we know about Caleb is his dad's name and the tribe he's from, so there's really not much for us to go on. We're not really told what qualified Caleb for this secret mission, and we can probably speculate that he was somewhat involved in the military in ancient Israel. Many, if not all, able-bodied men were in those days. But the main reason Caleb and all these other spies were likely recruited is because the physical challenge of the spy mission may have required someone a bit younger. But this assignment was different than just charging into battle and days before satellite surveillance and such, gathering field data about the enemy was tactfully important. And before we get any misconceptions, Caleb's not a double O agent who likes his martini cocktail shaken, not stirred. Nor is he a deadly CIA operative with instinctive combat expertise but has amnesia and is trying to figure out his born identity. No, no, no. Observing and reporting is all the spy work we get here in the Bible. But the 12 spies' mission, should they choose to accept it, was to infiltrate the land of Canaan and observe the military strength of the various people groups that inhabited the promised land, taking special note of their defensive fortifications and their numbers. You see, Moses and the leadership of Israel were already well aware that the promised land, it wasn't free real estate. God had told Moses way back when at the burning bush, the land was not uninhabited. In fact, it had several tenants that were not looking forward to relocate anytime soon. A whole host of people groups called the land home. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a lot of ites. And the final thing standing between God and the people's way from possessing the promised land was them. This last obstacle or hurdle to overcome and gathering a bit of reconnaissance was critical to formulate any battle plans ahead of any campaigns in the Canaan. But there was one other objective, a secondary objective, another reason to send the spies into the enemy territory. The spies were also to observe the fertility of the land, the fruitfulness of the land, the vitality of the land. God told Moses again, back at the burning bush, this land was a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This place sounded like heaven on earth, and this singular assurance... This divine guarantee, this promise by God, this has fueled the migration from Egypt. Through all of its ups and downs, the light at the end of the tunnel of this perilous journey through the desert has always been one day staking a claim in this land. And that sounded like paradise. Every step was made knowing that one day they and their families would be able to rest in this place of divine bliss. And finally, a select few individuals can actually see if all that God has said is either true or just a bunch of baloney. And so for the first time in 400 years, some Israelites get to step foot in great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa Abraham's property. And over four centuries, not since the time of Jacob and his sons, these spies were the first Israelites to step foot in Canaan, the land of promise, the plot of real estate the creator God said belonged to this family. 
Not even Moses and Aaron get this opportunity. These 12 random guys are given the honor and privilege of being the first to do so. For 40 days, the entire nation, all their friends and family, waited on bated breath to hear what they had to say. That must have been an agonizing few weeks, wicked, impatient, waiting at a drive through window or waiting for our YouTube video to buffer. The Israelites had to wait over a month to figure out if all their hopes and dreams, all that God has said, is it actually true? And it just lay way over yonder. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. Imagine the scene, if you will, of all of Israel, Moses and Aaron and the elders and everyone, seeing the 12 spies heroically cresting over the horizon like action stars, entering the the Israelite camp, carrying a cluster of grapes that took two of them to carry, and emptying their pockets of handfuls of pomegranates and figs. The rumors about Canaan were true. It is indeed fruitful, just as God said, and they can actually finally taste and see that the Lord is good. But perhaps Moses and the rest of Israel could see a look of concern on ten of the twelve faces staring at them. Two guys, Caleb and Joshua, are pretty giddy and excited, but ten other guys have a look of utter dejection written all across their bodies. They don't look as happy as Moses and everyone else expected to find them. These 12 spies say that the land is indeed flowing with milk and honey. It is everything they've ever dreamed and everything God said it would be. But there's a problem, a pretty big problem. You remember those people groups? Yeah, they're over there and there's a lot of them. And they're strong and they're impressive. Their militaries are trained and fierce. Their cities are built like the Death Star. Everyone knew these people groups existed. Everyone knew this was going to be an uphill battle. But these people are more intimidating and dangerous than anyone ever possibly imagined. But it gets worse. The spies say they saw the descendants of Achan living in Canaan. That's something they didn't anticipate. This wasn't on the brochure for the promised land. The descendants of Achan were a mean bunch of dudes. And let's just say these guys have a reputation in Scripture and not a good one. They are notoriously large warriors. The Bible refers to them as giants. In fact, I bet you know the name of one biblical giant, a descendant of Achan, a giant by the name of Goliath who who was slain by a young would-be warrior with a slingshot. Now, probably giants in our imaginations are not what the Bible's necessarily invoking, but let's just say the descendants of Achan were tall and they're huge in comparison to the average human being back then, much larger than the average Israelite foot soldier. These guys apparently ate their Wheaties. And you don't want to mess with them. The ten spies essentially say they saw a bunch of burly-built Goliaths running around the region on top of the other people groups already living there, and everyone in Israel takes a collective cartoonish gulp. But Caleb speaks up. He breaks the train of thought of the ten spies, quieting everyone down, and he boldly interjects, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb may sound a bit foolhardy, 
typical of young people nowadays, am I right? But Caleb's confidence is not entirely baseless. Israel had 600,000 warriors, according to the beginning of Numbers. You probably didn't know that because you skipped over the sizable population numbers at the beginning of Numbers. But they had a large population to conscript a lot of able-bodied men to fight. And a well-organized and orderly military strategy should have given the Israelites confidence to successfully enter Canaan. But Caleb stands alone right now. But the other spies disagree. We're not able to go against those people. They're stronger than we are. Caleb's the odd man out on this one, the black sheep, the minority report. And now the camp of Israel is faced with a dilemma of choice of who to believe, a decision between two varied estimates of human strength needed to conquer the armies of Canaan, two drastically different assessments of the same thing. Caleb says we are able, the other spies say we are not able. If you're the average Israelite, who do you believe at this point? If you're Moses, the commander-in-chief, the guy in charge, who do you side with? But if you're undecided or still on the fence, the spy, the ten spies might just sway your vote. The ten spies then revise their story. They backtrack to amend their previous statements with some details they've seemingly forgot to mention. The land, the Canaan, the one flown with milk and honey, yeah, it's no longer a paradise but instead it's a land that devours its inhabitants. It's a land apparently filled with sarlacc pits that slowly digest its victims over a thousand years. It's no longer a blessed land, but a cursed one. Death but all awaits anyone that would dare step foot over there. They're lucky they made it back alive. But the occupants of Canaan don't just include those people groups and the giant Aiken people anywhere. No, the spies say they saw mythological monsters called the Nephilim inhabiting the land. The Nephilim are only mentioned twice in the entire Old Testament, once here and once in Genesis 6 Four, right before the flood narrative. In Genesis, the Nephilim are said to be these semi-divine hybrid offspring of divine beings, or some will say demons, who had fallen from heaven and mated with human women. It's a weird story. But these primordial ancient Nephilim, or literally fallen ones, these freaks of nature, these monsters that blur the line between divine and human, that distort God's creation, they're right over there. And mere mention of the Nephilim's presence brings back these flashbacks of the conditions of the earth before the flood, meaning the land of Canaan is roughly like it was before God destroyed the world. Only the freakish Nephilim could live in a land that ate its own people. It sounds more like the upside down than a land flung with milk and honey. Instead of heaven on earth, it sounds more like hell on earth. And as the Israelites look across the Jordan River from their security in their camp, their imaginations are flooded with nightmares. What could be worse than a land full of people groups ready for a fight, a land filled with giants, a land that is cursed, a land full of monstrous human hybrids, a land filled with certain death, suffices to say this is the scariest environment imaginable. You thought Egypt was bad. You thought the desert was bad. These spies say you ain't seen nothing yet. 
It's at this moment it's important to maybe take a time out and point out nowhere does the narrator of Numbers report any basis for these claims about a devouring land or Nephilim and the actual account of the spy's mission. It's interesting what fear, when fear commandeers the narrative, isn't it? Fear hijacks this story and it starts chiming in its own creative liberties and amendments and alterations. What the ten spies initially say was admittedly daunting, but their fears begin to ooze into their story a bit during their second telling of it, and they start to exaggerate it. They transform it. They fabricate it. And the lies, the fake news, and the inflated pessimism of the spies has an expected effect on the morale of Israel. It nosedives. All the Israelites become afraid and complain against Moses and Aaron, refusing to go into the promised land. And in a series of a few brief lines, the Israelites renounce all that God has done for them up to this point. Any confidence or faith in God is thrown out with the bathwater. God's promise of possessing the land, gone. The joyous freedom of slavery in Egypt, renounced. The careful protection and provision of God in the wilderness, drying up the Red Sea and the water coming sweet and the manna and the quail, all these gracious, miraculous acts and gifts in the desert, forgotten. In fact, mass hysteria erupts throughout the entire Israelite camp, even before the advent of social media. A rumor starts circulating that any aggression against the monsters lurking across the Jordan will surely result in death. All the men will perish by the sword, leaving their wives and children as spoils of war. This is the worst case scenario. And the Israelites do the unthinkable. They say, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? It would be better to undo everything God has graciously done to free them to be his people than to dare even to step foot in Canaan. They then begin holding an election to select a new leader to get them back to slavery and bondage. This is not simply ousting Moses and Aaron from leadership. No, they're ousting God himself from leadership. The one who promised to personally lead them to the promised land. They reject the God of the cosmos, which has appeared by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The God who appeared in awe and terror on the top of that mountain and cloud and fire. The Lord they pledged themselves to in covenant. The one they built a mobile home in their neighborhood. They thumbed their nose at God being in charge, opting for one of them to retrace their steps and reverse everything God has done for them. A little bit of fear has sabotaged the entire exodus and made Israel break their covenant with God. Moses and Aaron fall prostrate on the floor, faces buried in the ground, half in anticipation for God's wrath to rain down on them, also partially in prayer of intercession for God's forgiveness. Caleb and his fellow spy Joshua, they start ripping their clothes. A sign of mourning and grief and distress. But I like to interpret this a little bit differently. Instead of remorse, they're furious, enraged. Caleb and Joshua are ticked. They hear all this false hyperbolic chatter and noise of the ten spies, and they cannot contain their frustration at them leading the entire populace astray. It's like they're seeing two different Canaans or two different gods. Caleb and Joshua, just as much as any Israelite, have been witnesses of the majesty and power of God. 
They may not be in the same caliber as Moses, but being up close and personal with God like he was, but they don't have to be to see all that God is able to do. They were in Egypt, and they saw those ten plagues on them. They were there when God parted the mighty Red Sea, and then when he closed it up to drown Pharaoh's chariots, they know they've seen just a sliver of God's power, a faint glimpse into the true sovereignty of God, and they don't need to see anything else to know that with God on their side, they will be victorious. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the, against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear. Caleb and Joshua are essentially saying the issue is not comparing estimates of human numbers or strength. The question is not about who is taller, who is stronger, who, who has better fortifications. All reliance on human power and estimates are irrelevant, trivial in the grand scheme of things. Caleb and Joshua say the issue at hand is about trusting in the power of Israel's God, their covenant partner. It's about putting their faith in the God who is with the Israelites in the midst of their community. In fact, his house is right over there in the middle of their camp. God can be trusted to make good on his promise to bring the Israelites into the land. God has proven himself time and again more faithful and capable. Why start questioning God now? After all he has done, God's promise and presence alone are more than adequate basis for their confidence the Israelites have no reason to fret. In fact, the giants and monsters over yonder are the ones who should be scared, not Israel. Caleb and Joshua are blown away that they are so close to the promise. But everyone wants to bail. And you know how the people respond? You know what they do? They want to kill them. They want to stone them. Cancel them. They want to silence this dissenting opinion, the one that doesn't line up with what their fear is chirping in the ears. Fear has a way of turning God's own people against one another. And if it wasn't for the presence of God himself stepping in and Moses interceding, the Israelites may have backtracked all the way to Egypt and never tasted for themselves and seen with their own eyes how the Lord is good despite being on the doorsteps of the promised land. One night, the Son of God was traveling with his friends. We don't know how long they've been together, palling around with him, getting to know him. But it's been long enough for them to see him turn water to wine, to heal the sick, restore sight to the blind, cleanse people of leprosy, cast out a few demons. And even a few selected them have witnessed him raise a little girl back from the dead. These guys have never seen anything like this. But one evening, the Son of God and his friends pile into one of their boats and set sail for the other side of the lake to the place where the Son of God wanted to go. But on the way there, an obstacle gets in their way. Their journey to where the Son of God wants them to go was not as easy or as straightforward as perhaps they were led to believe, and this happens from time to time in life. 
But a fierce storm erupted over the lake, and the language Matthew uses was that of a a seismic event. An earthquake uh, rattled the very foundations of this body of water. Waves began crashing into the boat. Lightning dashed across the sky. Hurricane-force winds started rocking the vessel senselessly. Rain was pummeling and soaking them to the bone. Water was breaching the interior of the vessel. It would be only a matter of minutes before the chaos monster had taken its latest victim. Water, particularly large bodies of water, were seen by the ancients as the embodiment and manifestation of chaos. And often depicted as a sea monster in ancient myths and legends, including the Bible. And the sea monster had chosen these men as its latest prey. And chaos has erupted around the disciples, terrifying them, taunting them, and teasing them, and blocking them from getting to where the Son of God wanted them to go. But little did chaos realize who was asleep in the stern. The disciples think they're about to die. Death is the only logical outcome that awaits them if they dare get any closer to where the Son of God wants them to go. But if they're going to die, they might as well wake their teacher up. So they decide to go get him up. You might as well be awake for this. And immediately the Son of God gets up and speaks directly to the storm. And it ceases instantaneously. And everything becomes calm. In the blink of an eye, with a few vibrations of his vocal cords, the forces of chaos and destruction and death are stopped in their tracks and extinguished by the Son of God. The monster of chaos who manifested in the turbulent sea was slain by the one who was moments ago taking a cat nap during its song and dance. The chaotic forces of this world cannot obey, cannot but obey his command. In fact, they tremble before his majesty. And they shudder when they hear he's provoked against them. Little did these men realize that the great I am, God incarnate, Emmanuel, the Son of God, was coasting along with them this entire time. It was as if the Son of God's slumber was all but mocking the forces of chaos, that their parlor tricks do not amuse him or intimidate him. He was in complete control of the entire situation the entire time, and his friends were panicking and worrying for nothing. And as they set sail again, the Son of God turns and looks at his friends, and they're speechless. The only thing on their mind is, who is this? But as the Son of God gazes into their relieved eyes, knowing all the things they've seen him capable of doing, knowing that he was right there with them the entire time. He's puzzled that a little severe weather got them so frazzled. He's confused why they're so easily persuaded by the winds and waves to listen to their fears instead of trusting in him. And the only question on God's mind is, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The age-old question God has been asking, whether you're Israelites on the borders of Canaan, disciples in a boat in the middle of a storm, or the church in the 21st century. I'm left scratching my head, church. Why is it when I hear the defiant confidence of someone like Caleb, we theologically agree with him, but practically we want to stone him? Why is it, if we were honest with ourselves, we'd probably side with the ten spies instead of Caleb and Joshua? 
Why is it when we look across the Jordan River into Canaan at the things in our lives that lay in the future, at the uncertainties that remain in front of us, at the temptations or trials that suddenly overtake us, or whatever the case may be, we are more likely to sound like the ten spies instead of the two. Why does that version of the story seem more satisfying and accurate than the dissenting one? Why do we feel more comfortable in the majority as opposed to the minority? I think it's what fear wants us to do. Let me tell you fear's playbook. Fear attacks our theology first. Fear wants to hijack our theology, our understanding, and beliefs about who God is. I believe fear is capable of seizing our understanding of who God is and starts to rewrite it. Fear knows our Achilles heel church, both our individual but also our collective weakness. If it takes our trust in God away, then fear knows it's got us, and we crumble. And we turn away, and we forget, and we abandon being God's people, and then we even become hostile towards one another. That's fear's playbook in a nutshell, and over time, and with enough exposure and repetition, it becomes less of a playbook and more of a culture. That's why, despite the abundance of evidence and proof of God's faithfulness, fear tricks us into thinking we need more. Fear wants us to go back to the drawing board about the character and agenda of God instead of relying on what we know to be true. Fear challenges us to bet on God, to second-guess God, to his goals, his agenda, his aims. In fact, we find ourselves right back in the garden wondering, did God really say? Last week, I was listening to a sermon where the preacher said something that I've been chewing on all week, and I want to share it with you. He asked Have we domesticated God? Like wild animals that are domesticated to live in captivity, have we done the same with God? But I want to ask it in a little different way. Is is this what fear makes us do to our theology, to our perception of God? Does fear make us distort our theology but also wants us to shrink it? Have we whittled God down so much that he is... from what he's revealed in scripture to be someone that looks more like us, that sounds like us, only possesses our power and capabilities, thereby making God incapable of doing God-like stuff anymore. Has fear convinced too many in the church of that? Has it convinced us to put God in a box instead of believing God can do things outside the box? Have we made God a God of only the possible instead of the impossible? If you find yourself on the beaches of Canaan this morning, with your theology seemingly on the verge of bankruptcy or simply on the fritz, and maybe fear's last opportunity to trip you up before you are where God wants you to be. If that's where you are and you're skipping stones across the Jordan, wishing you could have the faith and courage of someone like Caleb, can I tell you the major message of Caleb this morning? All of you thought you were listening to the sermon. Here's the sermon right now. The God who was with the Israelites telling them to go take the land, the God who was in the boat with the disciples who calmed the storm, is the same God who is the God is still alive and active in this world today. 
He hasn't changed. He's stayed the same. The God of the Bible is still the same God that the church worships to gather and pledges allegiance to. The God of the impossible is the God who is still moving and working in our midst, church. The God who will come into a space, that we come into a space like this to worship, is of God that chaos and death fear. They're afraid of the great I am, and this God that we're saying is wanting to dwell among us. That God beckons us to be in relationship with him. This is the God you probably said, one day I want to be my personal Lord and Savior. This is the God you pledge your holy life to live for and reverence and love. This is the God who says, I am surely with you always to the end of the age. Maybe you need to recover a bit of wonder and awe and also a bit of his power. And remember who he is, church. Don't let fear rob you of that. The monsters in Canaan take on different forms for us today, but they still dread the Lord Almighty. That hasn't changed. They tremble before him, and maybe we should too. Perhaps after a long time of fear weakening our theology, our fear of the Lord has eroded too. Maybe we need to recover a healthy fear of the Lord to combat fear. A moderated fear of the Lord, knowing that while he is awesome and sovereign, and even a bit ferocious and scary when he needs to be, he is still good. I think Mr. Beaver said it best when he was describing who Aslan the lion, the king of Narnia was. He says, safe. Who would he say anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Don't let fear rob you of your theology, church. Remember who God is. I think Rich Mullins said it best. He said, I know there's bound to come some troubles in your life, but there ain't nothing to be afraid of. I know there's bound to come some tears in your eyes, but that ain't no reason to fear. I know there's bound to come some trouble in your life, but reach out to Jesus and hold on tight. He's been there before, and he knows what it's like, and you'll find him that he's there.